Good morning, everyone. Good morning again. If I haven't had the pleasure of, of meeting you, my name is John Lee. I serve Mission Church as the lead pastor. I'm honored and I'm humbled to be with you this morning because we're continuing, especially as we're continuing our Advent series through the book of Ruth, which has been a delight for me in my time of preparation. I think it's been helpful and beneficial for us as a church as well. But Advent, it means simply this, it's, it's coming or arrival. Historically, as we have mentioned, these weeks leading up to Christmas are a time for Christians to slow down. It's a time for us to look back on the long foretold first coming of the Messiah, and as we do, we anticipate His return. You see, Advent is a season of preparation. It's a season of anticipation. And let's be honest, we feel the effects of living in the world that we live in. The world in which we live is, is broken. It's marred by sin, and we feel the effects of this. And if we slow down long enough, you can sense what we read in Romans chapter 8 as this cosmic ache that we can sense all around us. We can feel a deep desire for things to be made right. And so rather than ignoring those facts and ignoring the brokenness around us and the depravity within us, Advent is an opportunity for us to slow down, to face up to the darkness so that we can fully appreciate the light. Last Sunday, we began, actually, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. While you turn there, I'm going to pull up something here. All right, there we go. So tucked away in the Old Testament, we have a book called Ruth. During a time of chaos, before Israel had a king, hundreds of years before Mary, Joseph, and the birth of Jesus, there was a time called the Judges, when everyone did what they felt was right. And during this time, we stumble upon a girl called Ruth, and her story is one that's full of sadness. It's full of, of tears and even death, but it's also a story where hope is found in the darkest of places. Now, we're in chapter 2 this morning, and, and so let's recap for a moment, if, if you'll allow me, the first two episodes of our series together. In chapter 1, we met a, a man named Elimelech. Everyone say Elimelech. Yeah, good job. Now, Elimelech, he had a wife. He took her, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, two strong Star Trek names, to a place called Moab. Why did he take them to Moab? Well, because there was a famine in his hometown of Bethlehem. You see, rather than trusting God to provide for his family, trusting God to provide for himself, he decided to trust in himself. And the result of this was, well, he ended up dying, and, and so did his two sons. And it left Naomi and his two Moabite daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, to fend for themselves. Naomi gets word that the famine in Bethlehem is over. And so, with no other option, these two broken, these three broken widows begin the journey back to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem. Somewhere along the journey, at the prompting of Naomi, Orpah, she returns back to Moab. She goes back to her people. She goes back to her God. But Ruth, she doesn't. She does the exact opposite. Says she'll forsake her land, forsake her people, forsake her God. And with that, the two of them complete their journey to Bethlehem. And now, where we find ourselves, Ruth and Naomi enter Bethlehem during what's called the barley harvest. Which means, not only is the famine over, but God has lifted His hand of judgment upon His people. And the question now is this, and one that I hope to answer in our time together, is could the same restoration that God has given to the people of Bethlehem also be given to Ruth and Naomi? 
Will God take notice of them? I mean, here is Ruth, a Moabite in a foreign land. She is an alien with little to no hope of acceptance from those who viewed her merely as an enemy. She's widowed. She has no land. What would happen to her? Well, we're going to find out in Ruth chapter 2. Before we do, let's take a moment to ask God for His help. Will you pray with me? God, we thank You for Your Word. I pray, Lord, that You would soften our hearts to a greater understanding of the Gospel. You stir our affections for Jesus. Pray, Lord, that You would help us to see that even in the middle of the mess, that You are sovereignly working in our lives for our good and Your glory. I pray, Lord, that You empower me to speak clearly and faithfully. The words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in Your sight. You are my rock and redeemer. I love you, God, and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt empty? Felt as though you're not simply scraping the bottom of the barrel, but you've already taken the barrel, you've held it upside down, you've shaken it, and discovered that there's absolutely nothing left in it. Further scraping would be a fruitless task because there's nothing left to scrape, let's be honest. Life, life is hard, it's difficult. We all experience circumstances. We've all known difficulties that have brought us to our knees and left us feeling completely empty. And for many, the Christmas season amplifies this reality. In a season that promises nothing but holiday cheer, we can try to mask the, the, or ignore reality. We could try to numb the pain with Christmas goodies and decorations and traditions, all of which is, is wonderful, but it doesn't do the job. The holiday season doesn't press pause on a life lived in a broken world. The truth is, this time of year has a way, I don't know if about you, but for me it has a way of sapping my energy, leaving us not with the promised Christmas rest, joy, and peace, but with an ever-present reality of loss, pain, and a general feeling of emptiness. In our despair and in our discouragement, we can be tempted to lose hope. We could be tempted to question God. God, are you real? God, do you care? You begin to doubt His love. You doubt His protection. You doubt His provision. And this is exactly where Naomi found herself at the end of chapter 1 of Ruth. Remember, she went from a state of fullness where she had a husband and two sons to take care of her. And now she's been reduced to a state of emptiness. She has come to the conclusion that God has also abandoned her. I think in times of despair, we too are quick to feel as though God has walked out on us. We are quick to question God's faithfulness. But, brothers and sisters, that's not the correct response to discouragement. It's not the biblical response to despair. Here in the second chapter of Ruth, the author points us to this truth, that God is providentially arranging the details of our lives for His glory and our good. Therefore, no matter What painful realities we face, we can be confident that God is good, that He is faithful, that He loves us, and He will provide all that we need. And although it's hard to see, God is at work in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. They had experienced the darkness of our sinful world, but even in the overwhelming fog of despair, God was working in their lives. And now there's a tiny sliver of light as the rays of God's sweet providence begin to break through the darkness. Let's look back at the last verse of chapter 1 in Ruth chapter 1, verse 22. Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess. 
they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. God's hand of judgment, as I said a moment ago, had been lifted from His people. There was food once again in Bethlehem. Now, if the trajectory from emptiness to fullness was possible for Naomi's people, then perhaps her own future was not as dark as she might have once imagined it would be. But in the meantime, there's a more pressing issue that her and her daughter-in-law Ruth face. They're hungry. What would they do? What would they eat? Well, Ruth, she's a strong and faithful woman, so she takes it upon herself to begin searching for a solution. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. It's a strong name. Boaz. Everyone say Boaz. The narrator gets ahead of himself. We'll get to Boaz in a minute, but he just wants you to know that he exists. But in verse 2, she begins the, the, the narrator begins, Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi, will you let me go into the field and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, go ahead, my daughter. In other words, Naomi may have been wallowing in her despair, but Ruth, well, she's going to do something. She's not content to just sit And what's interesting here is that her plan to go and find a field to gather grain in was something that that she would have read and known about by studying the law of Moses. This practice is called gleaning. And it's a kind of welfare-to-work program. It was a provision for the poor that God had made for His people. The law of Moses, it required farmers to leave the edges of their field unharvested. And it gave the poor the right to go and gather what remained on the ground and the edges of the field after the harvesters had done their work. It was essentially an opportunity for the poor to eat into the profits of the farmers. And gleaning, well, it was hard work. It was hot work. It was humiliating work. And it was dangerous work. For not every farmer at this time followed the law of Moses. Remember, we were in the time of the judges when everyone just did what they wanted to do. And so it wasn't necessarily a safe job, especially in this time. But with this in mind, Ruth is taking a huge risk. A risk that could end up really, really bad for her uh, really quickly, especially given the fact that she's a foreign woman. No one to protect her. So when Ruth volunteers to go out and glean for food for her and Naomi, she's making herself vulnerable. And not just for her own sake, but also for Naomi's sake too. Ruth was stepping out in faith. She believed that someone out there, somewhere, would be a generous, God-fearing landowner who would make room for the poor. You see, faith is active is what Ruth is teaching us here. Faith is not something that, that you do by simply waiting around for God to provide. No, we are called to do what we can, and as we do, we are to trust that God will provide for our needs. But unfortunately, more often than not, when we are discouraged, when we are in despair, we tend to give ourselves over to doubt, to worry. We stop believing that God is good, that He is faithful, We end up in a downward spiral in which our inactivity only makes our situation worse, deepens our despair, and as a result, we not only feel less inclined to step out and to walk in faith, but we become critical. Critical of relationships, critical of family, critical of the church. We stop reading our Bible, we stop praying. But brothers and sisters, when you're in this downward spiral of despair, the key to breaking this cycle is to grab a hold of God's promises. Look to the cross. See the height and the depth of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. See the smile of the Father's favor towards you. 
You see, in spite of your history of sin and your history of failure, God has lavishly poured out His grace on you and through Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection. And we need, in times of bitterness and in times of discouragement and despair, what we need the most is to be reminded again and again of God's grace to preach the Gospel to ourselves and to one another. And that's exactly what Ruth and Naomi needed. They needed grace. They needed someone to provide for them. To provide that which they had no ability to earn or, or provide for themselves. Ruth had nothing to offer anybody. But still, she stepped out in faith. Trusting that God would provide. That God would be gracious to her. Look at verse 3. So Ruth left, entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Now, make note that Boaz, he is a legal relative of Elimelech. This is crucial for us to understand, not only for today, but for the remaining last two chapters of of the book of Ruth. And so remember that Boaz is a a legal relative of Elimelech. Much of our narrative hinges on this detail. And Boaz is also described as, in verse 1, as a nobleman. He's a a wealthy man. He's a, a man that has influential standing within his community. He is a wealthy business owner. But Boaz, he's not just a wealthy man. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of godliness, which is amazing. There wasn't many of these men around. This is the time of the judges when chaos reigned and men did whatever they wanted to do and fulfilled every sinful desire that they wanted. And it's in this time that we're introduced to a man of both moral worth and material wealth who stands out amongst the crowd as not only a good man, but a God-fearing man. And while Ruth, she just happened to end up in Boaz's field. She just stumbled into good fortune. As luck would have it, literally the Hebrew reads, her chance chanced. And what we have here is a little tongue-in-cheek. It's a Hebrew funny. Of course, the narrator doesn't believe in chance. He doesn't believe in luck or fortune, but rather he's pointing us here to God's providence. Consider Proverbs 16.9 that says, A person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. In Proverbs 16.33, which says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The whole Bible views the the world as coming under the fatherly sovereignty of God. Jesus emphasized this truth as well when He spoke in Matthew chapter 10 about a bird doesn't even die without the Father's knowledge. With this in mind, we can see that the author of Ruth is using sarcasm. He's using wit to emphasize an extremely important point. In reality, he is screaming, see the sovereign hand of God at work in the life of Naomi and Ruth. The same hand that sent the famine, and later provided food is the hand that has brought Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem at precisely the beginning of the harvest and now has guided Ruth to the field belonging specifically to Boaz. This isn't something that just happened. This is God, something God providentially and sovereignly designed. God is always working and arranging the details of our lives. He's not just working in the miraculous He's not just working when in, in healing. He's not just working in what is viewed as miraculous, but He's also working in the desperate. He's working in the mundane moments of our lives. Ruth believed this. She knew this. And she was desperate for grace. Therefore, her faith was not only active, but it was laced with humility. She trusted God and she acted. And she had no idea where she was going. 
She was new to this place. She's never been. She had no idea where she was, but she trusted that God would guide each step that she took. You see, Ruth just happened to get the desire to go and glean. She just happened to go to a field of a family member, and in a moment, she will just happen to be at the exact right place when Boaz shows up. Friend, nothing just happens. But rather, you will land exactly where God wants you to be. And this truth makes me think of how I met my wife, Stacy. One random Thursday evening, we just happened to attend the same church service one night. We just happened to have a same group of friends and ended up eating together at the Applebee's after service, and we just happened to be seated right next to each other, and later she just happened to be my wife. Brothers and sisters, the fact is that God is providentially working in your life, and yes, that may be a mystery, but you can be confident that He is constantly working to accomplish His gracious purpose in your life. And as you pray as you seek His will, as you make decisions, and even as you make mistakes, and you will. It is God who orders the events and guides your steps. And consider the possibility here that Ruth, that God is is teaching this new daughter of His to trust in Him in a difficult season in her life. What about you? Where might the hand of God be working in your life today? What is God teaching you during this season of life. Now, as Boaz enters the scene, the narrator points us to the truth that God's timing is perfect. Not only that, but we're given a brief glimpse of Boaz's character by the way he greets his workers. Look at verse 4. Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. Boaz's religion was not a a once-a-week kind of thing. He, his spiritual life is not just about a, a morning quiet time either. Rather, it seems that God is on his mind in the ordinary routine of his everyday life. You see, this guy is the same at work as he is on Sunday mornings in worship. And we find him greeting his employees with the covenantal promise of God that I will never leave you, that I will always be with you. And by doing so, Boaz is saying, as you guys begin your work today, remember the presence and the blessing of God in this field. You see, Boaz honors God with his work. And his employees, whether or not they trust God and follow God, they respect them for it. And friends like Boaz, we too should do our work with the Lord's glory and grace on our minds. Whether you're at home folding the kids' laundry in the office or on the sales floor, our faith should be evident. And we should use our words to bless and build up others. Think about it like this. What kind of impact can you make in the workplace, in your home? What do you talk about? How do you treat others? If we are to live like Jesus, if we are to lead others to Jesus, we have to live with integrity, wholeness. Who we are on Sunday morning is is who we are on Monday morning. And who we are when everyone's watching is who we are when no one's watching. Boaz's integrity impacted his employees. And now his integrity is going to have an impact on Ruth. Look at verse 5. You hanging with me? I know I'm going quickly, but we have a lot to cover. But I want to make sure that I haven't left you behind. Good? Okay. Boaz asked his servant, who was in charge of the harvesters, whose young woman is this? The servant answered, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little in the shelter. 
Boaz, he looks over his field and as he observed his employees, he sees someone he's never seen before. Someone that catches his eye. He sees an unfamiliar face, so he calls the foreman into his office and he doesn't simply ask who Ruth is, but look at what he asks. He says, who does she belong to? He asks, whose daughter is this? Or, or whose wife is this? Where does this young lady fit into society? In other words, what has happened to this young woman that has led her to have no other choice than to do what would be the equivalent of dumpster diving in our modern context? Why is no one caring for her? What has happened that has led this young woman to this state? And the foreman replies, in effect, oh, she's that foreigner that came back from Moab with Naomi. You know the one. She's an outsider. She doesn't really belong anywhere. But I can tell you, she's been working really hard all day. Boaz knew exactly who he was talking about. Remember last week, as soon as Ruth and Naomi arrived, the gossip train began. So Boaz has heard. He knows. He heard all about Ruth abandoning her people, abandoning her land, abandoning her family, abandoning her God for the sake of her mother-in-law. And now he found her hard at work in his field. And despite their social standings, which couldn't be further apart, Boaz spoke to Ruth with tender care and gives her a generous offer of favor. Look at verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field. Don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. Grace has impacted Boaz's actions. First, he offers Ruth provision. You see, normally a person in her position would have to go and get her own water. Would have to draw her own water. But Boaz puts her on equal standing with those that are working for him, with his employees, and tells her, you don't have to go get your own water, but rather drink from the water that's already been drawn. In other words, Boaz has given Ruth here a place of significance. He's saying you matter. You're not less than. Drink the water that is already provided. And not only does he offer her provision, but he offers her protection. He tells the men, don't you dare touch her. Don't you harass her. It was dangerous to be a young single woman. And Boaz knows that if she leaves his field, if she goes to another field, she has an opportunity to be harassed, to be abused. She has the risk of being sexually assaulted. And so he tells her, don't leave my field. I will provide for you. I will protect you. God has answered Ruth's prayer. He has guided her steps of faith by leading her directly to where she would find favor. The exact place where she would find grace. And how does Ruth respond? Look at verse 10. She falls face down. Bowed to the ground. And said to him, Why have I found favor with you so that you notice me? Although I'm a foreigner. She couldn't believe it. She's overwhelmed. Why was this man being so nice to her? What did she do? What has she done to deserve such kindness, such favor, such grace? And the truth is, she had a point. I mean, we all have baggage, but she had baggage. There was a lot that she brought to the table. She was an immigrant. She was homeless. She was dirty. She was broke. She was raised in a cult. She was not a virgin. She had already been married. And her only friend was her bitter old mother-in-law. 
If this was her dating profile online, there's no way Boaz would have swiped right. Let's just say that. And she knew it. She was self-aware enough to recognize the reality that she had nothing to offer. She had nothing to bring to the table. Good news for her, grace is not something that we can earn. Grace is not something that we deserve. And friends, if you pause and access access your own reality like Ruth and, and begin to look at your life, we also have nothing to offer. Our profile, let's be honest, it isn't that great either. But like Boaz, God gives us grace. Not because we are great, but because He is great. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. If you remember a few months ago, we talked about this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 5 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by what? Grace. A couple verses later, he even reiterates this. Now, it's this inability of us not to earn and not to be able to, to deserve salvation by saying, in verse 8, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. Ruth has done nothing to earn the gift of Boaz's favor, and she is in awe. And so she lays face down before him out of respect. And look at how Boaz responds in verse 11. He says, everything that you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. These are perhaps the first nice words that she has heard since she arrived in Bethlehem, since she left Moab. And although Ruth had no idea who Boaz was at this point, he knew all about her. He knew that she had turned her back on her former land, on her former gods, and that she was looking to the Lord for refuge. And so with this in mind, he prays for her. This is what verse 12 is. It's a prayer he prays for. He prays that God would grant her protection, that God would grant her refuge, that God would give her the grace that she so desperately needs And look at how she responds in verse 13. She says, I have found favor with you, for you have comforted and encouraged your servant, although I'm not like one of your female servants. Everything that Boaz was praying for is everything that God was using through him to provide for her. Ruth is overwhelmed by a deep sense of gratitude and she expresses relief. She expresses humility. She had no idea what the day would bring when she left home to go glean in the field, but by God's grace, she found herself in a field of favor. She found herself in a field of grace. And Boaz's kindness to her continued to grow. It doesn't stop there. You see, it's lunchtime. The dinner bell has rung, and he invites her to sit at his table. Look at verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz told her, Come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. It was like balsamic vinegar and oil. So she sat beside the harvesters and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied. And get this, not only was she satisfied, but she had leftovers. Ruth had been working all day. She had little to nothing to eat. And Boaz provides her not only with a meal, but a feast. For once, she had enough to eat. She even had Tupperware container to take home to her mother-in-law. Boaz even commanded his men to deliberately, carelessly drop grain as they're harvesting for her. So this poor widow would have an abundance to gather 
Look at verse 15. Look at what he says to his, young, his, uh, his workers. When she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, let her even gather grain amongst the bundles and don't humiliate her, but pull out some stalks and from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered and it was about 26 quarts of barley. And that maybe isn't that impressive, but it is when you kind of put it into our own understanding of our own measurements. It's about 30 to 50 pounds of grain. Picture a giant dog food bag from Costco and you get the idea. In a bag this size, it would have usually taken an average worker about two weeks to gather. Verse 18, she picked up the grain and went into town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over for, from her meal with Boaz, and, he, and he, she gave it to her. So Ruth returns home not only with enough to eat for several weeks for her and Naomi, but there's more, even more to talk about. Look at verse 19. Her mother-in-law, I imagine she's in shock, and she says to her, what? Where in the world did you get this food? Where did you get this barley? Where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. And then Ruth told her mother-in-law whom she had worked with and said, the, man, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. <laughs> Ruth had no idea who Boaz was. Imagine Naomi's face though. She knows exactly who Boaz is. As Ruth tells her about her day, presents her with a mountain of food, Naomi, I have to imagine, is in shock. The practical evidence of God's grace before her must have been overwhelming. For the first time in a long time, Naomi saw the sweetness of God's providence at work in her despair, and her heart began to soften towards God. And she cries out, look at verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. God protected Ruth. God provided for her. God provided for Naomi. And what they have now, and what we have now at this point in our story is front row seats to witness a personal revival of sorts in the life of Naomi. As her posture towards God changes. Remember, when she showed up to Bethlehem, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Referencing the Old Testament when the place in which the the bitter water came out of the rock. She says, call me Mara, because I'm God has turned against me. She is bitter. She's upset. And at this point right now, her posture begins to change. Her heart begins to soften. And, and her bitterness is replaced by thankfulness. Here, the declaration in verse 20 is a complete 180 from her despairing words in chapter 1 where she once only saw bitterness. She now has gratitude and thankfulness. She recognizes that God has been working all along. This whole time, God has been at work in the midst of her despair. She sees now that God has never left. He never turned His back on her. This whole time, God has been providentially arranging the details of her life for His glory and her good, and she's overwhelmed by His grace. Maybe like Naomi, you are also in a season of grief. A season of pain. A season of despair. You may be tempted to ignore the pain. You may be tempted to numb the pain. But the pain you experiencing, you are experiencing, brothers and sisters, is real. And it's not to be ignored. And it's not to be numbed. Notice in our text that God is not belittling or ignoring Naomi's pain. God has never told us to ignore it. God has never belittled your pain. 
Rather, He's inviting you to trust Him in your pain. To take comfort in the fact that we serve a Savior who experienced pain. Who can relate fully to us. This morning, allow Naomi's story to encourage you. And ask God to open your eyes to see His sovereign hand at work in your life. I pray that God would grant you the grace to see and to know that your circumstances do not define who God is, but God is who one who defines circumstances. At least changes your perspective in the midst of your circumstances. Naomi proclaimed that God has not abandoned her, and He never stopped showing His kindness to her. And his, this word kindness in our text is this Hebrew word has said, and it's really important, and it speaks to God's love and His covenantal faithfulness that at one time her pain had blinded her to. She had forgotten. She could not see. But in this moment, she sees that God never left her. He never abandoned her. And that same faithfulness that God showed Naomi, God has promised to you too. Now, Naomi continues by pointing out to Ruth who Boaz is. And I have to imagine that she's extremely excited. And I can't help but imagine that she's stumbling over her words. She can't wait to get them out. And you're not going to believe this, Ruth, but that guy you just met, he's a relative of mine. He's one of our family redeemers. Ruth the Moabitess said, He also told me, stay with my young men until I finish. they have finished all of the harvest. So Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, my daughter is good for you to work with this female servant so that nothing will happen to you in another field. Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley harvest and the wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Those few verses span several weeks of time during this harvest. But Naomi's mind must have been racing at this point. For Boaz was more than a good man. He was more than a godly man. He was one of Naomi's family redeemers. The Hebrew word is goel, and it points to the law of Moses, and it speaks of a close relative who was able to come to the aid of a family member. The instructions were that when a man died, his brother was obligated to marry his widow, raise up his children. He was even supposed to give the, the dead man's name to the firstborn out of the new marriage. This would ensure that the inheritance would come to be associated with the deceased man. Now, the law of Moses doesn't say anything to obligate Boaz, nor does it address foreigners like Ruth who had married into the family. In fact, there's a lot of loopholes that Boaz can take if he desires to, to get out of this. To avoid redeeming Ruth, to avoid redeeming Naomi. But we're going to leave this as a hanging point here because this is going to be basically what we're going to talk about next week. But for this morning, it's introduced and Boaz has already acted as a Goel of sorts. He has already been functioning as a Redeemer of sorts. He has protected Ruth. He has provided for her and Naomi. And with this in mind, and at this point in the story, I think it's beneficial for us to step back. To take a thousand foot view, a thousand foot perspective. Behind every step that Ruth and Naomi has been taking, God has been at work not only guiding his, their steps, but He is at work developing a scaffolding for all of redemptive history. Consider the fact, now hang with me, consider the fact that Naomi and Ruth arrived back in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Remember. In other words, they came home at, at the time of what's called the Feast of the Passover, which was celebrated when the grain harvest would begin. 
I can't think of a better time for an exodus from the land of Moab into the promised land, but the time in which they celebrated their exodus from Egypt to the promised land. And by the end of chapter 2, it says the barley harvest ends, which is seven weeks from the beginning to the end of the harvest. Seven weeks has passed, and we arrived at the end of the barley harvest. In other words, the end of chapter 2 is a celebration. It's another feast. It's called the Feast of First Fruits, otherwise known as Pentecost. By this time, Ruth and Naomi, they experienced the first fruits of God's deliverance in the gift of Boaz's grain. But they had not yet fully seen the gift of God's provision and all that God has planned for him. We're going to see that next week in the Redeemer. Ruth not only experiences the first fruits of God's grace, but in the scaffolding and the whole picture of redemptive history, she is in a profound sense the first fruits. You see, in the fullness of time, in Acts chapter 2, we see that Pentecost was the day that God chose to pour out His Spirit on Jews and Gentiles alike, bringing them together into one new people of God. In other words, Ruth's incorporation by faith into God's people was a foreshadowing of the much greater harvest that God one day would reap among the Gentiles as His grace extended more fully, not just from this young lady from Moab, but all of the nations. Naomi and Ruth had no idea the part they were playing in God's redemptive narrative. But the author of Ruth wants you to see, and he wants you to observe the perfection of God's timing. Because you and I also play a role. And like Ruth and Naomi, we too have received the first fruits of our salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we too are waiting for its fullness when our Savior returns for us. Consider Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Paul writes, not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Brothers and sisters, we are so preoccupied with the challenges of surviving from one day to the next, we are so quick to forget and that life is short and that someday soon we'll be standing before our Savior. And when we do think about it, it does seem for us who are following Christ that this, this redemption is taking forever. But don't forget that God's timing is perfect. Our present groaning, our present despair, our present difficulties, and the general pain that comes with living life in this broken and sinful world will one day come to an end. And they will give way to shouts of joy as we receive full adoption as sons and daughters of God. This morning, I want to invite you to see that God is providentially arranging the details of your life for His glory and for your good. And whatever painful realities that you're facing this morning, don't discount what you're going through, but run to Jesus and find your refuge under His wings and run to Him. You can be confident that God is good. You can be confident that God is faithful. You can be confident that God loves you and He will provide all that you need. Take a moment to calm and quiet your hearts and focus your attention on this reality and find hope and encouragement to persevere patiently while we wait and anticipate the arrival of our Savior. And when He does return on that day, He'll wipe every tear from every eye. There'll be no more pain, no more brokenness, no more death, because there'll be no more sin. And we will rejoice in joy as His sons and daughters for all eternity. Let's pray. God, we thank You for this glimpse into what You've been doing for all these years. We thank You that You are at work in our lives. We thank You for the gift of the church for those times 
in which we don't see You working. In times when we are tempted to despair, You've given us a gift. Just as Naomi was given the gift of Ruth, we've been given the gift of the church. And You instruct us in Your Word in Colossians to encourage one another with songs and hymns and and to point each other to the good news of the Gospel. I pray, Lord, that we would fulfill that as a church, that we would care for one another, that we would point ourselves and, and one another to the good news of the Gospel, that You have not left You have not forsaken. You will not walk out on us. And that we can be confident that You are with us. And that You are working all things for our good and Your glory. And we do anticipate Your return. At the end of the book, it says that You are returning and You will be returning soon. And that we we join in revelations and pray, Lord Jesus, come. In this season of Advent, as we celebrate the good news of Your birth, in which You... Jesus lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserve, rose from the grave, give us opportunity to be with You. Lord, we also anticipate and slow down and recognize that this broken world is not the end, but we look forward to Your return. And so during the season of Advent, would You continue to remind us of that good news. Lord, we love You and give You all the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.